We're uh, starting a new series today uh, on the book of Romans, and uh, we're going to be in this for a while. And I didn't realize this, but in uh, 20 plus years of ordained ministry, I've never preached through the book of Romans. Uh, So I don't know how that happened, but uh, here we are, and I'm excited about this. So I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would work by your spirit through your word and that you would change our hearts, that you would help us to understand and know and experience and receive uh, the power of the gospel in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. I, I I want us to think about this question for a moment. What do you think is powerful? What feels powerful to you? There's a lot of things we could talk about. M- money feels pretty powerful. Uh, with, mo- with money, you can get noticed. With money, uh, you can get things you want to have. With money, you can get access into social circles that you want to belong to. Money, money feels pretty fa- powerful. You know what else feels powerful? Data. Data feels powerful. If you have good data, not only can you win all your arguments... 
But uh, you have this sense that you can engineer the life you've always wanted. And there's, there's kind of a liturgy we engage in in the modern world that mirrors the liturgy uh, that we do here every time we read scripture. And it goes like this. This is the word of the data. Thanks be to data. And it's inscribed on our hearts. Uh, you, know, you know what else feels powerful? Therapy feels powerful. Healing childhood trauma. Developing skills to manage your anxiety or your neuroses. Powerful, powerful stuff. Or how about this? We live in Silicon Valley. You know what, you know what feels powerful in Silicon Valley? Technology. Technology feels very, very powerful. You hold a computer in the palm of your hand that is more powerful than anything anyone else had decades ago. And now we have AI. There's been a lot of talk recently about the singularity. If you've never heard that before, the singularity is an imagined future point at which human beings and technology will merge and we will become better versions of ourselves. If we want to be better than we are, then we need the power of technology to help us transcend the impulses, the evolutionary impulses that are rooted in our biological bodies. And we need to become more like machines. That sounds like pretty darn powerful stuff. And all these are just tools of power that are all around us. And there's types of power that we experience. There's military power. Those countries that have nuclear arms can be pretty menacing, just like we are to other countries. There's social power. Canceling someone, boy, that feels powerful. And then, of course, there's political power, which we all are very familiar with. It's why we all lose our minds during election cycle, because we think it's a zero-sum game of power and disempowerment. And if we don't have our guy or our gal in the White House, we are powerless. Power is all around us. And ethicists are teaching us to ask a couple of questions about power, about tools of power and about types of power. And the two questions are, at what cost and for whose benefit? And those are great questions. But regardless of what you make of any of these tools or any of these types of power, this is the world that we live in. And if we're honest with ourselves... In this kind of world, sometimes the gospel doesn't feel all that powerful. In fact, it feels weak and irrelevant. And there's a temptation, a temptation deep within our hearts to be embarrassed by it, to be ashamed of it. Paul is writing into a very different world than ours in many ways. The first century Roman Empire. But you know what? It was no less intimidating and no less overwhelming. Rome was the epicenter of worldly power in Paul's day. And just being in the presence of Rome can make your knees knock. It was awe-inspiring. It was overwhelming in its, in its force. And a message about a crucified Messiah would get you laughed out of town. And yet into this world, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Now, 
You might say, interesting, I'm new to this Christianity bit. You know, who's this Paul guy and why should I care what he has to say? Well, one thing you should know is that this guy, Paul, was willing to stake his life on this claim. In fact, if early Christian tradition is right, he actually did lose his life for this claim. That he actually eventually came to Rome and he was beheaded. Not just a few years after writing this letter likely during the persecutions of Nero. He was crushed by Roman power. And yet the message he proclaimed, the power of the gospel that he preached, has circled the world, changing hearts, changing lives, even to this very day. Paul's letter to the church at Rome is his magnum opus. It is the place where he goes into the greatest detail about this gospel that he says is the power of God. And just a few little notes about this. I don't want to bog us down in introductory stuff, but it's likely that he was writing this in about 57 AD. And uh, he was on his third missionary journey. Many guessed that he was writing from Corinth and he was having some time to sit down and reflect and plan for his future. And there were a few things he wanted to do. He wanted to preach the gospel all the way in Spain. But he had a collection that he had gathered, a relief collection that he needed to deliver to Jerusalem. And so he's writing to this church at Rome, a bunch of house churches that were experiencing tensions. And we'll go into more detail about this later between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And he's wanting to to come visit them and encourage them. He's also, as it says in the middle of our passage, he wants to experience their encouragement as well. And he wants to get their support. As we read at the end of the letter, it's kind of a fundraising effort to help him preach the gospel in Spain. But he also wants them, wants to help them sort out their differences. And the only way that's going to happen is by drilling down into this very gospel that he says is the power of God. Paul, in verse 1, says that he is an apostle, an apostolos. He didn't apply for that job. He didn't volunteer for it. He didn't self-authorize. He was called to it when God crashed into his life. And from that very day on, he was consumed with one thing, this gospel that he calls the power of God. Now, the book of Romans has been called one of the greatest pieces of ancient literature ever to be written. And one of the reasons for that is the impact that it has had on our world. And you can kind of look through Christian history and see all the big names that have been affected by it. Uh, Augustine's world was rocked by it. Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, and even into our day, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Fleming Rutledge, she writes, I was 15 years old. When the message of St. Paul to the Romans first began to dawn on me. And my life has never been the same. Which is why she calls Romans theological dynamite. Which fits well with a passage that talks about the gospel as the power, the dunamis of God. Verses 16 and 17 are like a thesis statement for this whole book. And we're going to spend time talking about that. And we're going to spend time talking about the first few verses and and not so much attention to the middle. But here's the thing I want you to grapple with. If you want this to change your life, this book, this message, 
like it has so many others, you got to understand and receive what Paul is talking about here in verses 16 and 17. Because it is through believing the gospel that the power of God is unleashed in our lives. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask three questions this morning. What is it? What is the gospel? Why does it matter? And who is it for? What is it? Why does it matter? And who is it for? So let's start first with that first question. What is the gospel? Now, if you, if you notice, um, when we talk about the gospel, like we sometimes think we're talking about those books called the gospel, according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. And that's not what Paul means here. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. And that difference makes all the difference in the world. The word gospel, euangelion, right, comes from a word that that means good news. Good news is what the gospel is. And I want you to think about it like this. In the ancient world, how did news travel? It wasn't through newspapers. No one reads those anymore. It wasn't on Twitter. Didn't exist. It wasn't through CNN. It traveled through messengers. Heralds who would come into town and declare the news. They would say, victory or there's a new emperor, Vespasian. In fact, you can go back and look at the literature and they talk about Hear the good news. Vespasian is now the emperor, right? It is an announcement that means something has changed that is of great consequence to you. Now, in our day, we talk about the difference between soft news and hard news, right? Soft news is like, I don't know, the largest watermelon ever grown in New Zealand was discovered, you know? And you're like, that's great. It doesn't really impact my life. It's not of much consequence. But, you know, hard news is President Biden was reelected or President Trump is back again. That's news that has consequence for your life. That's hard news. The gospel is hard news. And the gospel is the heart of the Christian faith. And at the heart of the gospel is news about what God has done in Christ. And three quick things I want you to note from the first four verses. Paul calls it the gospel of God. It is from him. It is about him. That is the center of the good news. It was promised beforehand through the Holy Scriptures, which means this isn't a Johnny-come-lately religion. It's not Christianity. It has a long history, an ancient pedigree. And this is the way Paul always talked about his gospel. If you read in 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, he said, I passed on to you what is of first importance. What's of first importance? The gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he rose again according to the scriptures. This is a story with a long history that is coming to a climax and a culmination in what God has done in Jesus. And of course, Paul's next phrase here is, it's concerning his son. It's about Jesus. 
And that means if you ever want to under, if you're ever going to understand the gospel, if its power is ever going to be released into your life, you need to know that it is first about him, not us. About what he has done, not what we do. And you know, this makes Christianity different from every other religion or philosophy. Other religions will say, if you, if you want to know God, or maybe in their metaphysic, uh, if you want to get spiritually centered, or if you want to unite with universal cosmic energy, here's what you need to do. You need to fast, you need to pray, you need to travel to Mecca, you need to meditate, you need to do all these things. But only Christianity says, listen up, hear, pay attention, receive the news of what has been done for you in Christ. And why is this important for us? Because if you ask the average person in Silicon Valley what it means to be a Christian, they'll probably say something like, try to live by the example and the teachings of Jesus. And, and that's a great idea, by the way. Like, we should, we should be for that. But that's not news. That's advice. Some of you have grown very tired of trying. And you're saying it's just not working. The gospel doesn't feel powerful. Others of you are saying, I, I'm, it's January. I'm going to double down. I'm going to try harder than I've ever tried before. I'm going to do better this year. But you know what? You're never going to experience the power of God in your life that way. Because the breakthrough happens when you realize that before Christianity is about anything you do, it is about what God has done for you. In Christ. It is good news, not good advice. Now, why, why does this matter so much? Well, this is what Paul writes. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you want to know what makes the gospel so powerful? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So you have to ask, what is the righteousness of God? And uh, this is fun. Um, some people would say, well, this refers to an attribute of God, right? God is a righteous God. And that's undoubtedly true. Uh, he is holy. He is perfect, right? That is his character. But that doesn't seem to be exactly what's in the foreground here. Because Paul says in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, it is disclosed. And of course, the Israelites knew all along that God was a righteous God. This is what the law told them. This is what God had revealed all throughout uh, the, the history of the Old Testament, right? Others say, no, it's an activity of God. It is his saving intervention in keeping with his promises in faithfulness to his covenant. And the Bible uses righteousness and saving intervention together all the time. It's throughout the Psalms. It's in Isaiah 40 through, through 66 all over the place. So most definitely that is here. But here's the third way that people have understood this. It's a gift from God. A righteousness he achieves through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And Paul will go on to talk about it this way in this very letter to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 5, he will talk about the free gift of righteousness that we receive. He will talk about a righteousness that we get that is in contrast to the righteousness we try to establish on our own in Romans 10. And if you look at Paul's own autobiography in Philippians 3, he contrasts a righteousness that he tries to establish with a righteousness that is from God. When Paul unpacks his gospel, he means all of these things. So it doesn't really matter that we decide exactly what the righteousness of God refers to because his gospel tells us this. It is God's righteous way of making right those who trust Jesus by giving them a righteousness that is not their own, but his. And you know what that means? It means the gospel is not just about forgiveness. It is about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, this led to a great breakthrough in Martin Luther's life. He meditated and meditated on verse 17. And uh, he said he kept hearing the phrase, the righteousness of God. And, and it made him angry because he thought, this is God's just judgment of my sinfulness. And no matter how hard I try, no matter how much of an impeccable monk I think I am, I know I don't stand up to scrutiny. And he said, I didn't love God. I hated him. Until he realized that in the gospel, which is the power of God, there is a righteousness we receive from him. His hate turned into love. The righteousness of God is a righteousness that comes from him to us, and we receive it by faith. And when Luther understood this, it blew the doors wide open in his life. See, the gospel has the power to change our thinking, our priorities, our passions, our families, everything, because it can do what nothing else can do. The one thing we need that nothing else can accomplish and that is reconciliation with God. It's the deepest longing of our hearts, and we don't even know it all the time. And this is the news. God has done something in and through Jesus, his son, that changes our relationship with him. Paul will later describe it as being justified in his sight, declared righteous in his sight. And God has done it in a righteous way. And I want you to notice, <clears throat> this isn't something that happens inside of us first. It is something that happened outside of us that ultimately will change what's inside of us. The gospel is more than forgiveness of sins. It is a declaration of righteous. It's more than, it's more than getting a pardon from prison, right? It's like being clothed with a congressional medal of honor. You know, there's a, another verse in, in Paul's writings, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, where, and we talk about this a good bit here at Grace Church, but it, it, Paul says, he who knew no sin, that is Jesus, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you ever thought about what that means? Does that mean Jesus actually turned sinful? He became greedy, he became angry, he became violent? No. But he was treated as our sins deserve. 
He was given the treatment our record earned. But you know, the other side of it is this. We don't become perfectly righteous by being united to Jesus, but we get treated as his righteousness deserves. We get are given the treatment his record earned. We're covered with his medals. We are clothed with his glory. We are robed in his righteousness. If you don't get this, you will never experience the power of God unleashed in your life. Now, some of you I know may not connect with the word righteousness. But I promise you, you, you'll recognize it if you look long enough inside yourself. Because you're going to see this longing to be validated. To be approved, to be received, to be accepted. You're longing for a righteousness that passes scrutiny. And we're going to talk a lot about that as we move through uh, this book. But it is everywhere around us and it is all up inside us. And you know where I hear it a lot? Is all the memes that are going around saying, you are enough. You see those? You hear those? You are enough. Why, Why do we say that? Why are we saying that to each other? Do you know why? Because we have a sneaking suspicion that we aren't. And if people really knew, they wouldn't think so either. And the gospel comes and says, you don't have to be enough. Jesus was enough for you. Uh, You know, uh, in 2017, at the Tribeca Film Festival, Oprah Winfrey was interviewed. And you know what she said was the most frequently asked question after an interviewer did their bit with her? The question was this, how was that? Was that okay? How did I do? And it didn't matter if it was Barack Obama or Tom Cruise or Beyonce or ordinary people that she was interviewing. Everyone wanted to know their status. Everyone wanted to know how they did. Everyone wanted to know if they lived up to the expectations of their hype. And what was interesting is everyone knew they couldn't render this judgment on themselves. That they needed someone outside them, in this case Oprah, to make a judgment on them, confirming that they survived scrutiny, that they passed the test, so they could show up on the other side affirmed, justified, righteous. Friends, look. This is the core struggle under, under all of our lives is that longing to be received and accepted. And that's not just out in Silicon Valley. That is right here in this sanctuary this Sunday morning. Hiding beneath all our activities are those questions. How was that? Was that okay? How'd I do? What is my status? Am I acceptable? And the Bible says there's a theological reason for that. Because fundamentally we know we are not right with our creator. And something has to be done to put us to right. If you try to find your enoughness in anything else, it'll be blown away. It'll be blown away by recession. It'll be blown away by betrayal. It'll be blown away by old age. It'll be blown away by rejection. But the righteousness of Jesus is bulletproof. The gospel is more than forgiveness. It is being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And when this lands on your heart, 
Paul says it produces the obedience of faith. That's what he's saying he's going around preaching the gospel for. Is that when this thing that happened outside of us gets inside of us, it actually does change and rearrange everything about our lives. It's an obedience that comes from faith. You know, an obedience that comes from any place else, it's, it's worthless and it doesn't work. But an obedience that comes from faith is an obedience that's generated by the power of the gospel coursing through our lives. Now, here's the last question. Who is this for? And this is part of the good news. It is for anyone and everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, if you're Greek or barbarian, if you're intelligent or stupid. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your personal history, the kinds of sins you struggle with, the condition of your mental health, your socioeconomic status, your age, your gender, your whatever. The gospel is for you to be received by faith. And Paul says it's from faith to faith. It is by faith, for faith, like all these different ways to translate. It means it's from faith from beginning to end. Faith is what connects you to Jesus and his work. And it will always be that way. Receiving and resting upon him alone for your righteousness. You can join the train of those who belong to Jesus, whom Paul describes. Notice how he describes them. Loved by God. Loved by God. Called to be saints. Right? This is the way of life. Any other way is the way of death. You know what, do you know what I mean by that? Well, think about it like this. She who through parenting is righteous will die a thousand deaths. He who through investments is righteous will die a thousand deaths. She who through academia is righteous will die a thousand deaths. And let me just make this personal. He who through preaching is righteous will die a thousand deaths every Saturday night and every Sunday morning. The gospel is different from moralism and religion. It's also different from self-care and self-curation, presenting the best-smelling, best-looking version of yourself all the time. We'll talk more about that later. What feels powerful to us? Well, Reaching our creative potential, personal freedom to ability to choose agency, being impactful, like these things feel powerful. But over and over again, you hear people say things like, I did everything I set out to do and I still feel empty. People have more power today in terms of freedom and agency and ability to choose than at any point in history. And yet we're somehow more lonely and empty and drowning in a sea of meaningless than ever before. The gospel does come in and make you die to your own things, but it raises you to newness of life. The righteous shall live by faith. What does Paul mean by that? It's a quote from Habakkuk. It's this crazy episode in the story of Israel where God's going to exercise judgment and salvation, but he does it in this way that Habakkuk doesn't understand. And, and God says, look, I'm up to something you're not even going to believe if I tell you. 
You're not going to get it. And then Paul sees the culmination of it in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, take a look at this. At what God does to upend the power structures of the world. The weak, suffering Savior actually becomes the power of God unleashed in your life. Why? How? Because in it, we get a righteousness. We get a reconciliation with God. Right? We get made right with the one who made us. You know, I came across an article this week uh, about the Irish philosopher John Moriarty. And uh, it's about his book, Nostos, which is a Greek word that means homecoming. It chronicles his spiritual journey. And Moriarty uh, tells about how he had given up on the simplistic, unconvincing Christianity of his youth. Walked away from it. He threw himself into academia and spiritual exploration only to become disillusioned once again later in life. So he left his career behind and he moved back to the mountains of Connacht in Ireland. And he sat around for a while <laughs> exploring various religious traditions, but really feeling like nothing means anything. And then one day he had a devastating personal crisis that shattered his world. And this is what he writes. In an instant, I was ruined. For years, he wrote, he had been engaged in a genuine search for the truth. Not merely a speakable truth, but a truth I would surrender to. And now he realized with terrible inevitability that there was only one story that could hold what he had seen. Only one prayer that was big enough. He had, he wrote, been shattered into seeing. Whether he liked it or not, Moriarty had become a Christian. Shattered into seeing. That's what it feels like when you have the breakthrough that people have experienced in reading Romans. When the power of the gospel lands on your heart. When you realize what is it that can turn hate into love? What can discern, turn despair into hope? What can turn sorrow into joy? What has the power to heal the brokenness? And you, you're shattered into saying, only God. Only God can do it. And the gospel is how he does it. The gospel gives us a story bigger than ourselves. It is the story of God's salvation. It is God's power unleashed in the world. And I want to return to the two questions that the ethicists encourage us to ask about power. At what cost and for whose benefit? The power of the gospel comes at great cost. But it's not our cost. It's God. God the Father handing over God the Son. To receive the just, the righteous judgment that our sins deserve but in order to give a righteousness to us. And the power of the gospel is of great benefit for anyone who ever, everyone who receives it. That's why Paul writes, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let us pray. God, we come to you um, and ask that your word would go down like seed into our heart that the message of the gospel would be received and believed 
and treasured and celebrated that we might know that power unleashed in our lives. God, would you do whatever it is it takes to open our eyes, to unstop our ears, uh, to soften us at our core, um, that we could surrender to this truth and that we could find ourselves in this story and that it would turn hate into love and despair into hope and sorrow into joy and heal the brokenness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.